Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, if you got your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, as you might be able to tell, um, my voice is not at full strength today. Um, so praise the Lord for microphones. Uh, I'll probably be uh, you know, talking a little bit quieter than I normally do. Um, but we're going to be, uh, so just bear with me and uh, we'll, uh, by God's grace, we'll, we'll make it through. I am very excited about this message. I'm excited about this passage. I uh, believe that it's going to be a blessing to you. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to read verses 22 to 33. It'll take us to the end of chapter 5. So I'm going to read the text, and then I'll pray and uh, ask for the Lord's help. And then we'll dive in, all right? Here's what God's Word says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I need your help this morning. God, I'm every single day, I'm, I'm very weak and I'm dependent on you for everything, Jesus. Apart from you, I can do nothing. But I'm, I mean, I'm especially reminded of my weakness this morning. My voice is, is far less than 100%. And so I need your help, God. Um, God, I'm thankful that even when my voice is strong, that your voice is always strong. That, God, with one word, you created everything that we see. You spoke the sun into existence. You created the universe and the galaxies, and you created our bodies that are so intricate that, that God, uh, the design is so complex and yet so perfectly made. God, you are, you are good, and your word is powerful. And so I pray now that as your word is read, as your word is taught, that, that you would build up your saints, that you'd build us up, this morning, God, and I pray for those this morning that don't know you, uh, that today, as they hear about the good news of the gospel, as, they, as we reflect on those words that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, oh God, would that melt even the hardest of heart here in this room? God, as they consider what that means, and may, as, as your people, as we, as followers of Jesus, hear those words again, and we're reminded again that you loved us and gave yourself up for unworthy, adulterous, treacherous sinners like us so that you could marry us, so that you could clean us off and make us your own. God, would that melt our hearts and would our hearts just spring out in love for you and, and in rejoicing, God? Jesus, 
May you be the treasure of our heart and our soul desire this morning. Inflame our hearts with love for you this morning. We need you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Robert Murray McShane once said that it is the mark of a hypocrite to be a Christian everywhere but home. You know, our true character comes out in the way that we interact with those closest to us, doesn't it? And we often reserve our, our ugliest words, our ugliest behavior for the people that are closest to us. But what we've been learning in the book of Ephesians as Paul has been unpacking the implications of the gospel that he really laid out in the first three chapters is that the gospel must shape every single aspect of our lives. Not just our, our appearance on Sunday morning. We're not, we're, there's no such thing as a Sunday morning Christian. We're Christians or we're not. We're born again or we're not. We've been made new or we haven't been made new. And so the gospel touches and shapes every area of our life, and that includes our relationships. Now, in chapter 4, Paul, uh, the last couple of weeks, um, Paul explained how if you're a Christian, then that means that the old you is dead and gone, and that you've been made a new creation. And then in the end of chapter 4, he says, so in light of you being a new creation, you have been called to, or the gospel has transformed you to walk in love towards one another. And then in chapter 5, Paul begins to describe how the gospel has transformed us to walk in purity in the world. And now, here in verse 22, Paul's going to begin to unpack how the gospel transforms various relationships in our lives. And he, uh, he, he looks at three different sets of relationships. He looks at the husband-wife, the parent and the child, and the employer and the employee, or as your text would say, the bondservant and his master, and Keith is going to be unpacking that for us in a couple of weeks. This morning, we're going to be looking at the relationship between the husband and the wife, looking at the marriage relationship and how the gospel informs and shapes our marriages. And next week, we're, uh, Brian O'Day, the executive director of the Praetorian Project, is going to be with us, and we're, we're going to take a little break, and he'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and then July 9th, Pastor Keith will be picking back up, and we'll be looking at the relationship between parent-child and employer and employee. But this morning, we're looking at marriage. Now, if you are not a Christian, uh, I want you to know that this passage is about so much more than just having a better marriage. It contains the good news about how your relationship with God can be repaired. Okay, And so, that's reason enough for all of us to listen closely this morning. Whether you're married or not, whether you're a believer or not. If you're not a Christian, uh, or if you, if you are a believer here and you are not married, this passage shows you what you should aspire towards as you consider your future marriage. And even if you're not planning on getting married, this passage helps you to know how to pray for your married brothers and sisters in Christ. And it also provides a, you a picture of the way in which God and Christ loves you. And for those of us in the room who are married, who are followers of Jesus, this passage is especially helpful because Christian marriages struggle when we lose sight of the primary purpose of marriage or when we deviate from God's design for marriage. And so this passage helps us get back on track. And the main point of the sermon this morning is that Christian marriages will flourish when their purpose 
is to display the gospel and they're patterned after God's design. Christian marriages will flourish when their purpose is to display the gospel and they are patterned after God's design. So we're going to look at the purpose and the pattern for marriage this morning. Let's talk first about the purpose of marriage. Why did God create marriage in the first place? You know, I really think that this is where most marriages get off track. I think this is probably the root issue. Marriages struggle because people think that the primary purpose of marriage is to meet their own needs. And when you head into marriage with expectations like that, thinking that your spouse is primarily there to meet your needs so that you can have a satisfying life and a satisfying marriage, then you're bound to be disappointed because there is no way that your spouse could ever fill that role in your life. God didn't create your spouse to fill that role in your life. And so it's inevitable that you're going to end up having disappointment. You're going to be let down. And sadly, that oftentimes ends up in conflict or it ends up in people deciding, well, we shouldn't have gotten married in the first place. And marriages end, families fall apart, and the cycle continues. But the purpose of marriage is far greater than our own satisfaction. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And Paul makes this connection really clear in verses 31 and 32 of our text. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So that's a quotation of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. All the way back to the beginning of creation, God creates man and woman in his image. God creates them. Uh, He said it's not good for man to be alone, and so he created woman in his image, and he he created man and woman, and then he created this marriage relationship where man and woman would come together in a covenant union, one man and one woman called marriage. And the way that Genesis 2 describes it is that the two become one flesh. And in in verse 32 there, Paul says this mystery is profound. What's the mystery Paul is talking about? He's talking about the mystery of two people becoming one flesh. Okay? It's it's a mystery, right? And then what does Paul say? He says this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to or it points to Christ in the church. So what, what Paul is saying here is that all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, when God first created the institution of marriage, even before the fall ever happened, the mystery of the two becoming one flesh was, to, was created to point to Christ and the church. That was God's purpose from the beginning. So what that means is that marriage is not actually about me. It's all about God. Okay, if you're married in here this morning, I want you to look at your spouse and I want you to say, marriage is not about me. Marriage is not about me. Marriage is not about me. A truly satisfying marriage understands that it doesn't exist for itself. It exists to point others to something greater. This is why, by the way, that you guys remember the time where Jesus told the Sadducees that there's no marriage in heaven? You ever wondered why Jesus said that and why there's no marriage in heaven? Well, there won't be any marriage in heaven because we'll have the real thing. The purpose of marriage is to point us, to give us a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church and in the new heavens and the new earth, 
the Christ and the church are going to be together. So there's no longer going to be a need for the picture because we're going to have the real thing. That's why there's no marriage in heaven. When a husband and a wife love one another selflessly, it's a beautiful picture of the covenant love between Christ and the church. But it's just a picture. It's just a picture. It, it, it's, not, it's not a suitable substitute for the real thing. And looking to marriage for fulfillment in your life is like going to a restaurant and sitting down and getting the menu and there's a picture of a big juicy steak on the front and trying to eat the menu. Like it's not going to taste good. It's not going to fulfill you. And it's probably going to give you a stomachache. The purpose of the menu is to point you to the real meal, right? Is to point you into the direction of the steak. Are y'all with me this morning? I got to make sure that we're alive. Marriage in and of itself will not satisfy you. There's nobody out there on this planet. Listen to me. If you're married right now and in the back of your mind, you're thinking, you know, I'm just not sure that this marriage satisfies me. And, and if you were honest with me, you say, Pastor Jared, I'll be honest. So there's been times where I've thought about getting divorced. And maybe I married the wrong person, and there's a better person out there for me, and I'll be more satisfied. I'm here to tell you that's a lie from the pit of hell. Because what's going to happen, the only thing that's going to happen as you make that decision is there's just going to be a wake of destruction behind you. And you're going to continue to go searching for satisfaction, and you're never going to find it. It's the carrot on the end of Satan's stick. And you'll never get there. You'll never get there. Marriage is about so much more than our own self-gratification. It's meant to point us to something greater. Even the best marriage in the world is just a dim picture of this relationship between Christ and the church. Even the greatest husband on the planet has love that's tainted by sin and by selfishness. Nobody has perfect love. But there's no, there is not a single trace of selfishness in Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul says in verse 25 of our text, he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just consider how amazing that little statement is. God incarnate gave himself for unfaithful, adulterous rebels so that he could purchase us out of sin and marry us. Have you ever wondered how, why oftentimes in Scripture sin is described as adultery? Right? It's described as unfaithfulness against God. It's because that's what sin is. And every single one of us has lusted after other lovers. That's, why, that's what Romans chapter 1 describes. It says we've worshipped and served the things that God has created rather than God himself. We go chasing after everything in the world except for God. But rather than cast us aside, rather than judge us like we deserve to be judged, Christ Jesus came and dwelt among us and he came to give himself for us on the cross, dying to atone for our sin and to make us righteous. And what motivated him to do this for us? Was it because there was something lovely in us? Was it because there was something attractive about you? Was it because of your good works? Was it because you were better than your neighbor? No. The only thing that motivated him to do this was love. Because he is love. 
Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, Paul says. And Jesus' death did two particular things that, that Paul highlights here in this passage. First, Paul shows that Jesus' death cleansed us from the guilt of our sin. In verse 26, Paul says that we've been cleansed. Jesus has cleansed her. He's cleansed the church by the washing of the water of the word. That's just a reference to the gospel. The word is the gospel. So the gospel message washes us. It cleanses us from our sin. How? It's because Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for our wickedness. Our debt has been erased. Our uncleanness has been washed away. It would be like, like going to court and told that you had a $100 billion debt. And that if you can't pay it immediately, you're going to be tossed into jail until you can pay it back. Which is never. Because none of us could ever pay back a debt like that. And then all of a sudden, some, the richest tycoon in the world bursts through the back doors of the courtroom. And he walks in and he says, I'll pay his debt. I'll pay the debt. And the judge says, well, alright. You're free to go. Your debt has been paid. There's nothing more on your record. Colossians chapter 2 says that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Brothers and sisters, do you understand? Do you recognize that Jesus came to die on the cross for your sin so that the record of the debt that you have that you could never repay could be nailed to the cross forever so that you could be set free? That ought to cause us to shout hallelujah. That's good news. It's the greatest news in the history of the world. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So goes the hymn. But Jesus' death doesn't just cleanse us from the guilt of our sin. Jesus died to make us holy and pure. Look at verse 27. There's that little so that. Why did Jesus die to, to, to cleanse our guilt and to sanctify us? He did so, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus not only paid our debt, but He rose from the dead three days later. And then He poured His Spirit out upon the church. And He put His law in our hearts just like He promised to do in the New Covenant so that we would no longer turn away from Him. And He has promised that He is going to make us clean. He's going to make us pure. So Jesus finds us in the filth of our sin. He finds us while we're in bed with other lovers and He calls us out and He says, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to wash you away. I'm going to take off these filthy prostitute garments. I'm going to put on you bright white linen and you're going to be dressed in dazzling white and I'm going to do it from start to finish for you so that one day you're going to stand before me blameless. That's the end result. We'll be blameless and white before Jesus when He returns. That's what Jude 24 says. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible where it says, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to prevent, present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. 
No doubt in my mind that Jude had Ephesians chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 19 in mind when he wrote that. He's thinking about the day when the church, the bride of Christ, is going to stand before Jesus in splendor. Let me, let me read that to you. Revelation 19, 6-9. And this, the, the Apostle John gives us a glimpse into what that day is going to be like when Jesus returns. And his work is finished in us in the church. Jesus has fully sanctified us. He's made us holy. And this is what that day will be like. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. On that day, we will see Jesus Face to face. The veil over our face right now we see is in a mirror dimly. But then we'll see Him face to face. And we won't need the picture of marriage on earth anymore. We'll have the real thing. And we'll be completely pure. Without any hint of sin. Without any impurity. The church will stand before Jesus in dazzling white. But we won't be able to boast. It's not, a, it's not because of our own works that we're standing before Jesus in dazzling white. What did John say? He said it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Just as a groom delights over his bride as she walks down the aisle, so Christ Jesus anticipates the wedding day where he will delight over us. So how can one be sure that they will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb? How do you know that you will be there on that day? Well, it's an open invitation to all who have ears to hear. Repent and believe the gospel. Friends, you cannot make yourself pure. If, if you think that you're going to be able to make your own wedding garments and that you're going to be able to get into the marriage supper of the Lamb, into that banquet one day, because of the, your, own, your own garments of good works that you have made, you're going to find that when you get to the doors that day, you'll be refused entry. You will hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. There is only one way into the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that's through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And we need a righteousness that's not our own. We need to take off our own filthy garments of sin by confessing our sin, by confessing that there's no way we could ever do enough good to impress God or earn our way to heaven and let him put on us the clean, white garments of righteousness of Jesus Christ. Believing that Jesus died in your place and that he lived the life that you couldn't live in your stead. That's the way in. You can make that decision today. You can decide today is the day I'm going to start following Jesus. And the moment you do that, your future, your eternity will be secure. And, I, and friends, I hear you, you hear me say this all the time, and there's a reason I say this, is because I'm convinced that because we live in a, in a culture that swims in, in Christian lingo and Christianity, there's a lot of people that know about Jesus and know about Jesus dying on the cross, 
and things like that. But I don't care if you've been in church your entire life. If you're sitting there this morning and you know the Spirit of God is working in you and drawing it in you, and you're saying, I'm not sure if I really have certainty about where I'm going to spend eternity, make sure. Because here's the deal. If the evidence that you're pointing to is like, you're, well, I attended church all my life, or I got baptized when I was a little kid when I was seven, or I prayed a prayer one time, that's not the evidence that, that says that we're born again. The, the only assurance that we can point to is have we repented of our sin and trusted in Christ alone for our salvation. That's the only way we can have assurance that we're going to stand before God one day. So I want to invite you to do that if you haven't. Now, our momentary marriage is intended to, intended to point to everything that I just described. It's intended to point to this eternal marriage between Christ and the church. So I want to spend the rest of our time thinking, well, how do we do that? How do we live that out as husband and wife? So let's talk about the pattern of marriage, the pattern of marriage. So God created men, men and women equally in his image, and he has designed husbands and wives to have different complementary roles within marriage. Why? Why does God give men and women different roles in marriage? Well, again, it's because marriage is not about us. It's intended to depict the beautiful romance between Jesus Christ and his bride. And just like in that marriage, there are different roles. Christ is the head, right? Christ is the one, is the savior, right? And the church is the bride. There's different roles in marriage. The role of husband, of the husband is sometimes defined as headship because Paul says, in this passage, that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. That does not mean that husbands are more important or that husbands have more value. It's indicative of the servant leadership role husbands are called to take. We give you a definition of headship. Uh, it is the self-sacrificial leadership, provision, and protection of his wife with an aim towards her spiritual, emotional, and physical flourishing. Uh, in regards to the role of wives, Paul says in Ephesians 5.24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I'll give you a definition of submission. So submission is the gracious and glad submission to and support of her husband's leadership. This is not a slavish, begrudging submission, but a glad submission. Headship and submission are, are like two dance partners, one leading, one following. Not because one is better than the other, but because both roles are essential. And the end result, when both are playing their roles in the dance, is beautiful art, right? Unless I'm dancing, then it's not going to be very beautiful. Now, I understand that these are not popular ideas in the broader culture. And even the word submission may make some of you uncomfortable. It may make some people uncomfortable. I'm just going to be honest with that. In fact, I watched two people walk out about three minutes ago out of the, in the back of the room. Why? Because, let's be honest, in the culture today, uh, we don't like the idea of authority. We don't like the idea of authority in the home. We don't like the idea of authority of God's authority over us. We bristle at it. And I just want you to stop and think, why is it that we bristle so hard at this? Why is it 
that when we hear this, like, like we can hear all sorts of things in, in church. We can hear all sorts of things in God's word. But when it comes to topics like this, there's this, this, this tensing up, right? There's this bristle. There's even this anger that can come out a lot of times. Why is that? I think, I think, at least in part, one of the reasons that our culture is uncomfortable with this idea is that it's been abused in a lot of ways. Headship and, and submission have been exploited. Uh, sin has taken God's good design and distorted it. And the fall causes us to sin against one another. Now, here's something I want you to understand. Sin did not create headship and submission. It distorted it. It corrupted it. Sin corrupts everything good that God creates. Uh, so this, this road of complementarianism, this idea that God has created marriage with roles for men and women, has a ditch on either side. One ditch is called exploitation, the other is called abdication. Exploitation and abdication. So exploitation is, is when rather than selflessly and sacrificially lead their wives, sin tempts men to exploit and abuse their God-given role to lead for selfish gain. Sin turns God's good purposes for male headship upside down and turns it into something where men use it to press women down rather than to raise them up, rather than to serve, rather than to care for, rather than to put women first, okay? That's sin. That's not male headship. That's not what scripture calls us to do. And honestly, when people resist the idea of male headship, that's usually what they're, what they're resisting. They're not resisting what the Bible teaches. Because if you actually consider what the Bible teaches, it's actually beautiful. And we're going to get into a little bit more here in a second as we unpack what this actually looks like for a man to lead his wife. Now, on the flip side, there's another ditch called abdication of male headship. This was the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Rather than lead Eve, he sat back and he watched as she listened to the serpent and ate the fruit that God told them not to eat. And though it was Eve who ate first, it was Adam whom God confronted first. Why? Because even before the fall, the responsibility of leadership fell to the man. And he failed. And the fall has only further, unrav uh, further unraveled God's design. As a result of the fall, God told Eve that one of the consequences of the fall would be that she would resist her husband's leadership. In Genesis 3.16, the Lord says to her, he says, Your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Sin corrupts God's beautifully designed dance between man and woman. It causes in woman an idolatrous jealousy for the role of her husband, and it causes in man a selfish urge to exploit his strength for personal gain. And while we should reject gross distortions of biblical male headship, we also must reject the equally damaging tendency to minimize the God-given differences between men and women that unravels God, God's good created order. Amen? So what does God's pattern for marriage look like? Well, let's talk about the role of a godly husband. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, one of the things I want to back up and, and, and be clear on is that these roles within marriage won't make any sense if you miss God's purpose for marriage. 
If, you th- if marriage is about you and your own satisfaction, then yeah, it makes no sense, husband, for you to lay your life down for your wife. And it makes no sense for you, wife, to submit to your husband. Why would you want to do that when it's all about you? But if it's not all about you, and it's all about God and pointing to His glory, and it's pointing to the relationship ultimately between Christ and the church, that changes the equation. Now it's no longer, well, what do I want my role to be? And what's going to make me happiest? Now all of a sudden it's, oh, okay, well, what does God want of me? How can I point others to His glory? How can I die to myself and to my own desires and serve my spouse and thereby help paint a beautiful picture to the world, the watching world of the relationship between Christ and his bride. That foundation has to be there. And the core of that foundation is that husbands, we need to love our wives. Marriage is a call to die to our own desires and to resolve to do only that which leads to the spiritual, emotional, and physical flourishing of your wife. That goes all the way from the big decisions all the way down to the little decisions. If you see a pile of dishes on the sink when you get home and you're tired from work and you want to rest, there's a decision to make. You can serve your wife or you can go sit on the couch and you can know in the back of your mind she'll probably get to it and she'll do it. But I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to pretend like they're not there, right? We can choose to serve ourselves or we can choose to serve our wives. One of the things in our home recently, recent example, is so my wife's pregnant and we have a cat. I should say she has a cat. And um, I tolerate the cat. And it's her cat. And she takes care of the cat. But apparently, um, when you're pregnant, you can't change cat litter. I'm not sure if that's real. I haven't looked it up. Or if my wife is playing a trick on me to get me to do the cat litter. But part of the way that I'm called to serve her in this season is to do the cat litter. And I hate it. I absolutely hate doing the cat litter. And some days I do it joyfully, and some days I do it with grumbling, which is not good. Men, are you serving your wife joyfully, or are you serving her with a grumbling heart? I have to confess, I scooped the cat litter with a grumbling heart this past week, right? Why is that? Because I have selfishness inside of me, just like all of us do, right? But we're called to lay our lives down for our spouses. We're also called to lead our wives. Especially, we're called to lead our wives to grow in godliness, Paul says that Jesus gave himself for the church, that he might sanctify her and present the church to himself without spot or blemish. Husbands, did you know that you are the primary person in the, in, in the life of your spouse who is responsible for helping her grow in godliness, to grow in her love for Jesus, to help her grow in her understanding of how much Jesus loves her? That's your job. What are you doing to help her grow in that area? Are you doing anything? If you're not, you need to repent. And you need to start and you need to go to her tonight and you need to say, honey, I'm sorry that I have not been leading you in this way in our marriage and I'm committed to making a change and I'm committed to starting today. And I I promise you, if your wife loves the Lord, her heart will sing when you say that. She will be overjoyed to hear you say, I'm ready to take the lead in this area in our marriage. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. You don't have to have a seminary degree. Like, here's what family worship looks like right now in our home. And we have a crazy home because our kids are crazy. And they, don't have, they have the attention span of a gnat. And so most of your kids are probably the same. That's just how kids are, right? And so we sit down after dinner. 
I pull up the Bible app on my phone and I read through the next section. We're just walking through the, the Gospel of Mark. And I'll just read, usually I'll paraphrase whatever we're reading through in Mark. And then um, they might ask a couple of questions or make some comments. And I'll just, you know, summarize it for them. And then we sing like half of one song together. And then I pray for about one minute. All in all, it takes about five minutes. Easy. You don't have to go buy a $30 family worship book. You can do that if you want to. That's fine. But you don't have to do that. Just read your Bible and pray with your family. It's really easy. But find some time to do it. Commit to do it, men. And then the other thing I think is important to do is let your family, if you're not spending daily time in the Word and in prayer on your own, and you're not going to have anything to give to them. You need your family to see you spending time on your, ha- on your hands, on your face, and on your knees in your study, praying, pouring out your soul to the Lord, reading God's Word, some of my earliest memories as a kid is, is like in the morning going and seeing my dad with a cup of coffee in his study with his Bible open, right? And I, I'll never forget that because it was just a regular thing. It was a routine thing. And so it was ingrained in my head as a young man that that's what Christians do. They spend time in God's word, come getting to know God better. We also need to not just take leadership spiritually in our homes, but we need to Lead in other ways, like take initiative in resolving conflict. Men are so bad about this, so bad about this. Because what we'll do is we'll shut down emotionally or we'll avoid hard conversations because we think it's macho and we don't want to talk about our feelings and so we just avoid it. And that's not manly. That's not leadership. Hey, you're, are you really going to make your wife be the one that's going to initiate reconciliation? Did Jesus wait for us to initiate reconciliation with him? No. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he came to us. He came to us. So initiate. I'm not wives. I'm not saying you can never initiate. If your husband's not initiating, then do it. But man, I'm I'm just hear me saying this. Like, if you know that there's conflict, take the initiative to go to your wife. Say, honey, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. What I said was wrong, or or, or what I said was hurtful, or or honey. I know you didn't mean what you said. Like, I forgive you. I don't want there to be anything between us. Can we talk about this? Can we talk about this? Take initiative. Husbands, we also need to protect our wives. We need to lead our wives. We need to love our wives. We need to protect our wives. Ladies, you would be appalled if you were out in public and a man with a gun came and tried to snatch your purse and your husband like hid behind you, wouldn't you? Right? If you saw anybody out in public doing that, you'd be like, what's wrong with that guy? Right? Like, that's crazy. Or if like you're laying in bed in the middle of the night and there's a, there's a bump in the night and your husband hides under the covers and says, go check it out. Right? Like he'd be like, you go check it out, dude. That's your job. Right? That'd be crazy. Why is that? It's because God has designed men to protect women. He's, specifically, he's designed husbands to protect their wives. And men, at times, we may be literally called upon to lay our lives down for our bride, just as Christ did for the church. And that's what men do. They lay down their lives. And it's not just physical protection, men. We also need to protect our wives emotionally and spiritually as well. You are responsible for making sure that your home is a safe place for your wife and your children to share their feelings. You need to make sure it's a safe place for your wife and your children to be able to confess their sin. You need to be able to make sure sure that your home is a safe place for your wife and your children to make mistakes. And they're not afraid that you're going to blow up on them if you do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. If they're walking on eggshells in the home because of you, that's not 
something's got to change. Something's got to change. You're responsible for protecting them, not for making them afraid. Not for making them afraid. You need to make them feel safe. And then lastly, men, we need to provide for our wives and our kids. In general, it's the responsibility of the husband to provide for the family. Now, I know here, here's what this does not mean. A couple things. It does not mean that women shouldn't work or have careers. Proverbs 31 depicts the excellent wife as, as one who's successful in business, who works hard, and who makes wise financial decisions that benefit the family. Praise God for wives who are great businesswomen, for wives who are hard workers, for wives who bring home the bacon. Praise God for that. Nothing wrong with that at all. This also doesn't mean that husbands shouldn't help out around the house, by the way. Well, it's my role to go to work, honey, so you're going to have to do all the laundry around here. Uh-uh. That's not what this text means, and that's nowhere in Scripture. Again, we're called to love and to serve our wives. What this does mean is that when there's no bread on the table, it is the man who should feel the primary responsibility to put it there. It's the husband who should feel the primary responsibility to make sure there's a roof, that the lights are on, that there's food on the table. Scripture doesn't give us these roles to place limits on what men or women can't do. It, it has nothing to do with ability or superiority. And there's times when the, 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 the wife is going to need to be the primary breadwinner. Every family situation is different. But husbands, take the primary responsibility for making sure that you lead your family in a way that the bills get paid, that food gets put on the table. I just want to close and, uh, and just spend a little bit of time talking about the role of a godly wife. Look at verse 22 and 24 there. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the church does not submit to Jesus because he demands it or because he threatens us. We need to be clear about that. The church submits to Jesus because we're happy to. Nowhere in the Bible are husbands called to demand that their wives submit to him. Okay? Submission is willingly coming under the authority of another. It's a voluntary submission, not a coerced submission. So for wives, submitting to your husband is going to require you to trust the Lord. Because your husband is fallible and there may be reasons not to trust his judgment in various areas. But if God has called him to lead your family, then you can trust the Spirit to lead him as he leads you. That's why in verse 22, Paul likens submitting to your own husband to, the, uh, to submitting to the Lord. He says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So when you voluntarily submit to your husband's leadership, you are simultaneously submitting to the Lord because the Lord has called you to follow his lead. Now, I want to introduce an important caveat here. If your husband tries to lead you into sin, you should not follow him. Because at that point, he's not following the Holy Spirit. And he's not leading you as he needs to. So if he tries to lead you into sin, at the end of the day, your primary faithfulness is to Jesus. Okay, And so don't follow him into sin. And if you're married to an unbelieving husband, and maybe you're a believer and your husband's not a follower of Jesus, you can still honor his role as the leader in your home where possible, but again, remain faithful to the Lord first and foremost. Wives, you need to understand how important your role is because you, your husbands can't lead without you and your marriage can't thrive without you. 
You aren't merely called to passively receive the leadership of your husband, but to nurture that leadership. Because your husband has weaknesses, a lot of them, right? Amen? Any women get an amen? Your husband has weaknesses? It, let, me, let me give you a few ways that you can help nurture his leadership. Number one, pray for him. More good can be done in an hour of prayer than a lifetime of counseling or reading books. Plead with God to help your husband lead with strength. Intercede for him. And then point him to the gospel. Your husband needs encouragement. There have been so many times, more times than I can count, where Jen has been a source of encouragement to me, where God has demonstrated his gracious, steadfast love towards me through my wife. It's because she's always there for me. She's always reminding me and pointing me back to Jesus, always pointing me to God's love for me on days when the weight is too much for me to bear and I can't seem to continue on. And it's been because of her support by my side that I'm able to continue on each and every day. Wives, without you, your husbands cannot do what God has called them to do. That's why God said in the beginning, it's not good for man to be alone. So point him to the gospel and then encourage him. As often as I've, I've failed often, but again, Jen's affirmation of me makes me feel like a million bucks. She makes me feel manly. Men cannot lead well without the encouragement of their wives. And then lastly, patiently invite him to lead. So when he's being passive, don't be too quick to fill in the gap. Give your husband space to learn and to grow in his leadership. Tell him you want him to lead, not in an accusatory or passive-aggressive way like, any day now, I'm just waiting for you to start leading in our home, right? Like, don't do that. Don't be passive-aggressive. But, you know, hey, I, I want you to lead, and I'm willing to follow your lead. I need you to, to, to lead us, right? And then give him the space to do that. If he's completely passive and it forces you into roles that he should be filling, then fill that role, but do so in a way that lets him know that you're ready and willing for him to step into that role when he's ready and to start doing his responsibility as the head of your family. Now, there's no such thing as a perfect Christian marriage. All marriages have bumps in the road, some more than others. Like how Tony Marita said, the biggest problem in marriage is sin. And since marriage points us to Jesus, the Redeemer, when marriage is difficult, we must turn to Him. We need to remind ourselves of the purpose of marriage. And the purpose of marriage is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which tells of His gracious love towards us. And it's this gracious, undeserved love that we've received from God that enables two sinners to become one flesh to, and, and to selfishly, selflessly serve each other within their roles as they both seek to magnify Christ. Christian marriages will flourish when their purpose is to display the gospel and they're patterned after God's design.